0: Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, mend your ways, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And finally, Philippians 2.2 Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. For our third lecture, our topic is, be of the same mind with one another. The backbone, I guess, for our lecture tonight will come from Romans 15. If you are visiting with us this evening, we do have some visitors. This is the third in our lectureship series with the theme being, we are all members of one another, and how we relate as members here, to one another. Simon brought us do not bite and devour one another. Gary brought us serve one another. And my task tonight is to teach us to be of the same mind with one another. Let's do an exercise. No, not jumping jacks or anything like that, because I'd pass out up here. But let's do a mental exercise before we get started. Because you know, a, a, a congregation of 200 plus people being of the same mind with one another sounds complicated. Let's start with something much more simple. Let's all just simply think on the same physical object. We're going to picture the same physical object. Ready? One, two, three, go. Minos chocolate chip cookies. Everyone? Everyone? Anyone? No? No chocolate chip cookies? Okay. What was the point of that ridiculous exercise other than to stall tactic? Being of the same mind with one another, which is complicated or much more simple, simply thinking of the same physical object is impossible without guidance, guidance as to what that thought should be. If we can't even do it with the greatness of chocolate chip cookies, how can we possibly be of the same mind together, spiritually speaking? We must have guidance to tell us and direct us where that mind and that thought should go. But the next question that is begged asking is, is it possible even with guidance? Well, I mean, obviously the answer is yes, or you know, we're done here. But the answer is yes. But point being is it still complicated even with guidance. And I'll give you another example along the same lines. If I said, on the count of three, we're all going to think about chocolate chip cookies. One, two, three, go. Okay. Now, I know that some of you were thinking about chocolate chip cookies. Now, there were differences. Some of you were thinking about a nice, warm, gooey, moist chocolate chip cookie the way God intended it. Some of you were thinking more along the lines of that blue Chips Ahoy bag that's all like crunchy and crispy, Wes, Uh, the the wrong kind of chocolate chip cookie. So there were differences in what we were thinking even when told, even if we did it right. But there were differences beyond that because some of you probably weren't paying attention to what I said before I said, one, two, three, go, and didn't do it at all. Some of you heard it but probably didn't care to do it. Some of you were thinking, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight?" Some of you are thinking all the things you got coming up at work tomorrow and it's going to be a long work week, and some of you are thinking it's 49 days to college football season. So even though I told you what to think of and it's an extremely simple act, we probably didn't go 100 percent here. And even those that did it right, we had some differences of opinion of what we were thinking about. So even my point in all that ridiculousness, even, even with guidance, it can be complicated for a large group of diverse people to be of the same mind and yet we know it's possible because we are commanded multiple times to do so. We must strive all the more to achieve it because it is difficult. All right. Outline for tonight's lesson. I like to throw it out here ahead of time. One, because you'll know when I'm nearly done, and two, because I'm a visual learner, I kind of need to know where we are in this whole process as I'm making each point so we know, you know, where we're shooting for. So let's get an overall. What are we doing tonight? Four questions. One, of what mind should we be with one another? That's where I was going with the whole chocolate chip cookie. What, where, what are we supposed to be thinking? How are we supposed to agree? What are we supposed to agree on of what mind should we be with one another? What are the potential obstacles to being of the same mind with one another? Because it's not easy. We already proved that with the simple question. It's not easy. What are the potential obstacles? How will being of this, I left out a word here, how will being of the same mind manifest in our thoughts and actions toward each other? And finally, and while I get to this, you'll know I'm winding down. If we think and act this way toward one another, what will be the ultimate result, the end result? Where do we get to? What's the end of the road? All right, let's dive in. Of what mind should we be with one another? If you're already there where I told you the backbone of our lesson tonight would be Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 5 clarifies this for us. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Okay, let's make it more simple then. So if I know the mind of Christ in the context of our actions and attitudes and feeling toward one another, then I know what actions and attitude and mindset I'm supposed to emulate in dealing with my brethren and all of us in dealing with each other. So what am I shooting for? I'm shooting for the mind of Christ. Okay, well, so now I've got to find a passage that tells me what is the mind of Christ in relation to his brethren, to us, and his actions that resulted from his mindset. So if I can find that passage, then I've kind of got an answer to my question of what mind should we be with one another. Now, this will come readily to mind, one, because it's a passage we use all the time to make numerous points, but also because Gary hit a lot on it last week, and I don't want to belabor the point. But it's in Philippians 2. Alright, Philippians 2, excuse me, let me get there for just a minute, Philippians 2, again, Gary spent a fair amount of time here last week, so I don't want to pound it home too much, but Philippians 2, start with verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and then for Christ's example, let's skip down to verse 5, in beginning... Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So, how was Christ in relation to His brethren, and therefore how should I be in mindset in relation to my brethren? Humble yourself in relation to others. Serve others. Be obedient to God on behalf of others to the point of embarrassment, humiliation, exhaustion, annoyance. No, none of those. Christ was obedient to the point of death, yea, death, on a cross for us. His mindset before us was service, humility, and sacrificial death, if it comes to it, on behalf of the souls of your brethren. That was Christ's attitude in dealing with us, in dealing with His brethren. That should be our emulation in dealing with each other and our brethren, service, humility, obedience to God on behalf of our brethren. So what was Christ's secret? How was Christ able to do this? Because I'm going to venture to say it wasn't easy, clearly. So how was Christ able to do this? What was His secret? And I think you know, the, the answer here is, is a simple to answer, hard to pull off, right? Christ had a mindset on things above. Don't turn there, but we all know the story in Luke 2. Jesus is 12 years old. His parents take him to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. They go in a you know, traveling caravan of people from, from their from their geographic region. That's presumably family members of one or the other. And so they're in Jerusalem for the feast, and the, the traveling caravan goes to leave, and they get a day's journey out, and the parents look for him, and Jesus isn't with them. Look around, he's not there. We thought you we thought he was with you know cousin over here or uncle over here. Nope, he's not with any of us, so we're day back to Jerusalem. Take them three days to find him. Three days later, they find him in the temple, and he's listening to the teachers, and he's asking questions, and he's absorbing, and he's being part of this religious discussion and learning process. He's growing and developing. And I mean, you know, I'm gonna paraphrase, but I mean you know you know the mom's speech here, right? How could you? We were worried sick. What have you been doing this whole time? What were you thinking? That's the the parents. I've heard that a couple of times. What were you thinking? I've said that a couple of times. And and Jesus' answer, and we all know this this when we're kids, is, I must be about my father's business. Or your translation, I must be in my father's house. I've got a job to do. I've got a mission. Nothing can deter me from it. And sorry I got distracted in it, but I didn't leave with you. I'm being about my father's business. Now, overlay that in the passage where the the wording of mindset on things above derives Colossians 3. Look in Colossians 3 for just a second. Most of you have this memorized, but let's go there. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. So we got the example of Christ. I must be about my Father's business. Even at the age of 12, He understood that. His mind was locked into that in His mission. What are we told by Paul here in Colossians 3, 1 and 2? Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. All right, so let's sum up this one. Of what mind should we be with one another? A mind in accordance with the mind and attitude and actions of Christ. What was his mind, attitude, and actions toward us? Service, humility, obedience, and sacrificial death for us. We should be willing to go that far for our brethren. How can I convince myself to go that far? Well, my mind must be set on God and on things above. Anything short of that, and I will fall short of reciprocating to my brethren because it's not super easy. Now, technically, I have fulfilled my obligations to the the list out there. I mean, we could pack up and go home. Now, it said, let's talk about be of the same mind. I've given four verses that prove we have to, shown the command. So, I mean, I've established command, right? Okay. And I've defined for you what that means. And I've even given you a pointer of how to pull it off. We could go home. And if it were easy, we would. But it's not simple. It's not simple at all, which is why we fall short in it so often. Which brings us, what are some of the potential obstacles to being of the same mind with one another? Now, forewarning! These things I'm about to throw up here are not pebbles in the road. They're sinkholes in the road. They're craters in the road. We're way beyond potholes. These are things that get in the way of our being of the same mind with one another that have always caused problems in the church. How can we be of the same mind when we're all so different? Well, because we're going to use scriptural examples in the church of these problems, we're going to address problems in the first century church. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because that's where our scripture is, right? That's when it occurred. Problems that plagued the first century church, potential obstacles to their being of the same mind with one another. Be turning, if you will, to James chapter 2. The first problem we will address, economic differences among brethren. James chapter 2. Jacob, we don't care about that stuff. This doesn't bother us. Okay, well, good for you. Let's, let's, Let's read, let's learn a little bit. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and say, You sit here in the good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, and in this case in economic terms, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Right, so we got the background here, and we have a, a, a congregation of people that James is writing to, presumably Jewish people uh, who are Christians, that are having troubles with this. They have a natural earthly tendency to gravitate towards the wealthy and powerful and away from the lowly. Now, let's see an example of how that plays out in a congregation. 1 Corinthians 11. Wait a minute, Jacob. 1 Corinthians 11 ain't got the two things in it. It's covering stuff, and it's Lord's Supper stuff. What do you got to do here? 1 Corinthians 11. Pick up with me in verse 17, a familiar passage that we, just one small phrase we're going to get to in a minute that we don't, we don't emphasize a lot because it's not really the emphasis of this passage specifically, but I, I think there's something to learn here. Beginning in verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. There must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. All right, pause. we got division, right? On some basis... When these Christians are coming together for the most sacred rite and ritual that we as Christians have on the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper, honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they were somehow divided on some line. All right? What line is that? Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Well, that didn't really answer my question. Okay, let's go. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? The division these brethren were choosing with which to, you know, I'm on this side, I'm on that side, during the most sacred rite and ritual that we know was over economic lines, the haves and the have-nots. Now, again, we usually are covering much deeper things when we use this passage, and so we probably had not stopped and thought about that a lot. But of all the things the Corinthians could have divided themselves over, and we'll cover a lot more of those in a minute, when they were there together for this, they divided themselves between the haves and the have-nots. What row? Boy, we jumped into a big one second. wow. Racial differences. Good thing we aren't Jews and Gentiles. That would have been weird. They'd have had trouble. All right, so Jacob, where are we going to go to learn about racial differences in the Bible and in the first century church? Well, I mean, we've got the whole book of Romans. We've got the whole book of 1 Corinthians. I mean, there's a lot of problems there. I mean, we could go back and look at stuff even before that, Jesus and the Good Samaritan story and and all the issues with Samaritans in in Jesus' day. We could, of course, use the Old Testament and see all sorts of problems with, with racial issues. I picked Galatians 2. I want to look at Galatians 2 for a minute because I think it makes the point that racial issues existed in the first century church, and highlights the depth to which this issue affected the Christians in the first century church. Galatians 2, just three verses, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Okay, I'm going to give you a granted. Granted, Paul is calling him out specifically for hypocrisy here. But let's see what that hypocrisy revolved around. So again, I'm going to throw it up there. Granted, two of the most well-known, most admired, greatest men in the history of the church are caught up in a sin here. And yes, that sin is hypocrisy, but the hypocrisy involves around racism and the peer pressure of racism. And the reason I brought this out is not because these two men were such great men and pillars of the the faith in the early church. I want to think about Peter for a minute. This Peter is the same Peter who not long before this had stood before the Sanhedrin Council, the very Sanhedrin Council that had started the plot to kill Jesus. And he was on trial before this Sanhedrin council who had just killed his Lord. It had not been long. And they are trying him. And whether or not we realize it, because it doesn't seem like a major offense in our free society what he was accused of, he and the other apostles standing before the Sanhedrin, his very life was in the balance standing before these men at that moment. And they said, stop. And he said, no. I must obey God rather than men. This is the same Peter who boldly did that. He's not scared. He's not scared to be a Christian and to do the right thing and to stand up against wrong when wrong appears. But wait a minute. Then this comes into play. Then these guys who don't want to hang out with the Gentiles showed up. And instead of telling them to their face as Paul had to do to him, you're wrong. A man as bold in the faith as Peter fell victim to the peer pressure of racism. That's why I picked Galatians 2. It may not be the best example of racism in the Bible, but it's the one I think illustrates to us, those of us who would like to gloss over that and say, well, I don't have that problem, and I'm thinking most of us don't, so we're just going to move on down the road and shove it aside. Peter himself struggled with this. Was Peter a terrible person? No. Was Peter great for the church? Absolutely. Was Peter a man forgiven by Jesus Christ and who led us and has helped more people in this world than probably anybody else, maybe with the exception of Paul, other than Christ himself, obviously. Was Peter great? Yes. But Peter struggled here. Should we condemn him for that? Or or do we hate him now? No. But Peter struggled with that. We need to be aware that as great as Peter can struggle with that. And and when you're aware of something, you can watch out for it. Cultural differences. Now, I'm going to tell you, I struggle with this one. Because it's hard to unpack the distinction between racial differences in the church and cultural differences in the church. They tend to travel in pairs. And so if, if, you, if we look at my examples in a minute and go, Jacob, you're kind of nitpicking there. Yeah, I know. It, it's hard to unpack this. But turn with me, if you will, to Romans 14. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does eat, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Skip down with me to verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. There's a word mentioned in there twice that I want to bring out. We don't have time in the lesson tonight for, for me to go through the whole history and unpack what's going on in this passage about you know, the, the cultural differences between you know, how we view the meat offered to idols and how we view the idol's temple because I was raised in a pagan society where that was a big deal versus the Jews who thought it was a meat market because it's like a grocery store. You know, th- there's a lot going on here that we don't have time to delve into tonight. What I want to focus on there is that that difference rose from, from their cultural upbringing, the differences of what they'd grown up with and known. But more importantly, what I want to bring up is a word Paul uses twice there to describe the feeling, I guess, for lack of a better way, between brethren on either side of this when they let it get, when they let it become a problem, when one didn't bear with another and lift up another and help another and have the mindset to be with another. There's a word, and I think it's verse 3, and then again in verse 10, contempt if we do not bear with our brethren who have differences from us, if we do not help our brethren who have differences from us, if we do not become one and be of the same mind, that is equivalent to holding our brethren in contempt." Hatred. Finally, for this next section, struggled to word this one, but we're divided sometimes, or they were in the first century, along different stages of maturity and spiritual development. New Christian, old Christian, you know, came to Christ late, grew up going every Sunday, all those differences, right? We're in Romans 14, look at the first verse there. Except the one who is weak in faith. Romans 15, one, probably same opening for you. You who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And then to the passage that we want to use for this, 1 Corinthians 8. There's our backdrop. The strong bearing with those that are weak, for there will always be those that are weak. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Skip down to verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The enemy here was arrogance. Just like it was contempt in the previous passage. Arrogance, a feeling of superiority over your brethren leading to a strained relationship. And I want you to note, who did this problem lead to sin in? The stronger brother or the weaker brother? The answer is yes. It led to a problem of arrogance and contempt towards the weaker brother on the part of the stronger brother. But that's a sin. And it led to the weaker brother violating his conscience to try to keep up with the stronger brother. Who sinned here? Both. Different stages of spiritual development are inherent in the first century church. You can't get away from them. And so we see issues with that throughout the scriptures. All right. What about the church today? That was first century problems. Fortunately, we are much more intelligent, sophisticated, Educated, enlightened, modern. I mean, come on, we're better than that, right? We're better than that. What are our potential problems? Because we, I mean, we're going to have potential problems. Everybody's going to have potential problems, right? We don't get away from them. So we have potential problems, potential obstacles in the church today. So, so what are they? All right. So I'm going to reveal them. I, I like big reveals. You know, it's like a game show here. I like big reveals. So, all right. So There's our board. All right. So I'm going to say the magic word. I'm going to reveal the problems in the church today. Abracadabra. Okay, something didn't work right there, because it was supposed to be different. All right, let me go back. I'm going to try a different magic word. All right, here we go. Tuscarora. Mmm. Okay. The problems are the same. No less than the wisest man, who ever walked the face of the earth some 3,000 years ago, said, that which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1.9. We're not any different than Christians 2,000 years ago. We've got more modern conveniences. We've got the ability and the, excuse me, the blessing of Scripture being compiled easier for us and the whole revelation being revealed and we have it before us. But in terms of our interactions with one another and being of the same mind with one another and potential obstacles to that, we are no different than Christians 2,000 years ago. The problems are the same. Wait a minute, Jacob, there's others. I mean, come on, you're missing like the two biggest ones of today. What about political differences? That's a big one. Have you walked outside? That's a big one. Well, are not most of our political differences somewhere wrapped up in these four things? Ooh, Jacob, you obviously wrote this lesson when they assigned this to you a year and a half ago because you got nothing on there about all the strife that brethren in a lot of places are going through and not even speaking to each other over how they decided to deal with uh, COVID and meeting and should we meet, should we not? Should we mask, should we not? Should we distance, should we not? Should we have class, should we not? Should we vaccine, should we not? And let's all get really mad at each other over whatever we think. You, you didn't put that up there. Again, isn't that swallowed up and all these other things? Maybe you disagree. Maybe you don't think that political differences and, you know, COVID stance differences are wrapped up in all these things we read about in the first century. But even if you don't agree with that, we can all agree on one thing, that all these things plus those other things I just mentioned are divisions of men. We can all agree on that. And we can all agree on the fact that nothing good comes from any of them, from using them as a division. Nothing good comes from that. Look at Titus chapter 3. There's something here I'd never thought of this way until recently. Titus chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another." The second word in verse 3 is we. That's Paul who's the writer and Titus who's the recipient and presumably even the church in Crete where Titus is working and this letter was sent. We Christians, when Paul is writing this were foolish, disobedient I love this life of malice envy hateful and hating one another but we is not the most important word in verse 3. most important word in verse 3 is a four-letter word, were. Note when these things were. They were in a previous part of their life. What happened, though? Verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These things got to be a were. Yeah, Paul says, even me, even me. I'm not above it. Paul says, I'm I'm not throwing rocks at you and not throwing them at me. Paul says, even me. And you, Titus, and you Christians I'm writing to, we were hateful, and we hated each other. But that's a word. As long as the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love has appeared towards us, all those things got to be a word. The last thing I'd point out about these... Potential. We're not condemned to suffer these things. We're not relegated to, I guess we all got to hate each other. They're potential obstacles. They were problems in the first century church that Paul dealt with, and presumably when he dealt with these things in these congregations, they could deal with them and move on and grow from them. Same with us today. These are potential problems, potential obstacles. These differences aren't going away, the differences are, are constant. The problems, however, are only potential problems that we must work to overcome. We're not relegated to suffer from them if we do our jobs and be of the same mind with one another. All right, I'm gonna move forward. I'm going to fly through this one because next, third point, how will being of the same mind manifest in our thoughts and actions toward one another? Not that this point is not important, but I've got, let's see, eight or so things listed here. Almost all of them are either topics that have been covered in the last two weeks, will be covered in the next ten weeks, um, or or, or repetition of something we've already done. So I'm just going to hit the bullet points, we're not going to turn there. If any of you are really OCD and are taking notes and are going to cry that you don't have time to write all this down, I promise you I will email this to you. All right, how's it going to you're not going to be able to read it anyway, how's it going to manifest if we pull this off? if we develop this same mind, the mind of Christ, a sacrificial mind that is in accordance with a mindset on things above the way Christ wants us to be, what's it going to look like in my dealings with Ben, in my dealings with DeWitt, my dealings with Kevin? What's it going to look like? We will love one another. I love this one. We will prefer one another. More on that in a minute. We will be at peace with one another. We will think Oh, I' hit that there we go. We will think of one another more highly than we do ourselves. We will not engage in selfish actions. We will look to the interests of one another. We will not seek revenge or payback on one another. I'm going to stop on this one for a minute. We will preserve unity by proper attitudes and actions toward typo there, toward one another. Turn to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read the first three verses and then skip to the last two verses of the chapter. I like these because they basically sum up all these other things listed here, and they also remind us, our very first point, of which example we're trying to follow. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of of, excuse me, I lost my place, for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then skip to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Again, he's talking to brethren here. So obviously they had these issues among one another. Put all that away. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Again, I like it because it sums up all those points, but it also reminds us of our first point. Whose example are we following here anyway? The mind of Christ. Accordance with Christ. What are we shooting for? Forgive other, just like Christ forgave you. But again, sometimes I forget in verse 31, he's not talking to the world when he says, you guys got bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to the Ephesian Christians. He says, you've got to put that away. You've got to let that go. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. Oh, yeah, God forgave you. You better do it to others. So I like how that puts it together. Now, just this list isn't comprehensive. Again, I, I could have gone on for hours with that. It just it paints a pretty accurate and very encouraging picture of what God's people can be if we share the same mind with one another and the same goals and the same attributes, those that are in accordance with Christ Jesus. All right, last thing. If we think and act this way, all those things I just listed, toward one another, what's going to be the ultimate or the end result? Where's it going to get us, what's the end of the road? Let's go back to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, I said it's kind of where I took the backbone for this conclusion in in this lesson in general. Romans 15. What are going to be the, I'm kind of working backwards here in Romans 15, some of the end results that will occur if we are truly of the same mind with one another and work on all these attributes and offshoots of that. Romans 15, verse 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we've already read it tonight at the beginning, 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So what do we learn? Putting those together. If we think and act this way toward one another, what's going to result? We, we here, will have love and joy and peace. Just like, and it's always been this way, just like anger breeds anger. And revenge breeds revenge, and evil breeds evil, and sin breeds sin. Peace breeds peace. last verse in James 3 tells us that the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to grow the kingdom? Sow it in peace and be at peace among your brethren. And if we are of the same mind with one another, peace will breed peace and we will enjoy this love, joy, and peace in our lives together. And if we do that, next, also from Romans 15, 13, the last part of the verse, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will abound in hope. You know what hope is? This is not a definition, it's a description. Hope's a bright thing in a dark world. Hope's one thing that stands out. Look at these four things, love, joy, peace, and hope. And I pose a question to you. When you look at the news or the newspaper, people still have those, or websites, or use your own eyeballs and walk outside, and you look at the world, do you see love, joy, and peace? Do you see hope? Is that what you see in people? Is that what you're seeing today when you view the world around us? Our nation, other nations, our city, other cities. Are you seeing love, joy, peace, and hope? Does our society abound in those things? No, but it had better, better be an apt description of us here and with each other. And it will be if we manage to be of the same mind with one another. Look at verse 7, Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. If we are of the same mind with one another, we will accept one another. Whoa, whoa, now, hold on. Hold on, Jacob, you're gonna get us in trouble here. Not that we accept sin, or that people who want to remain in sin, but that we do accept our brethren, whoever and whatever they are, as we are all just trying to do what's right and work out our own salvation and get to heaven. Accept one another. What about the skin? What about the brother whose skin is a different color than mine? What about the brother who, I mean, dresses kind of funny, and he eats kind of funny food, and he lives a kind of funny lifestyle because he was raised way different than I was on some cultural issues. What about that guy? What about, what about that brother who doesn't make as much money as I do, doesn't drive as nice a car as I do, didn't get as much education as I did, and doesn't hold the same societal status that I do? What about that guy? What about the brother who hadn't been a Christian as long as I have, or, or didn't, grow up, you know, going every Sunday and, and learning from a young age. What about that Christian who just doesn't know as much? What about that Christian who still asks these, you know, low-level basic questions? Or maybe he can only answer the low-level basic questions in class, you know, he's, he's just not where I am yet. What about that guy? What about the brother who uh, is a completely different generation than I am? I don't know if you know this or not. I'm like somewhere in the middle, and some of you people are really young, I don't want to finish this sentence. of so you people are really old. There's a lot of different generations here. And generational differences, we have different thoughts, different values, different lot of things, right? So there's differences in, in age. What about that brother, oh boy, what about that brother who voted differently than I did? Talk about that. What about that brother who voted differently than I did? What about that brother who thinks differently than I do about COVID or mass or distance or or whether we should meet or how close we should meet? What about all that? Well, what about any of it? Accept them. Accept them. Love them. Let's go back to Romans 12.10. Prefer them. Prefer them to who? Prefer them to those people who look exactly like I do and have the exact same educational status that I do and have the exact same job that I do and have the exact same money that I do and have the exact same thoughts on this and that that I do and voted the exact same way that I do and were raised in the same town that I was and went to the same schools that I was. Well, that's who I hang out with on the weekends when I got spare time. I just see you people on Sundays. No, that's not the right answer. Accept them, love them, prefer these to those. Prefer them, but we're a lot different. Okay. Prefer them, love them, accept them. And if we're of the same mind, we will. It is a necessary offshoot of that. All right, now there's one problem with these three so far. We, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. Now granted, there's nothing wrong with those because those are all scripturally promised benefits. I mean, I didn't make them up. So good, these are directed at us. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't want to lose focus on where it's supposed to go, nor did, Paul in Romans 15, because Paul actually listed this one first. If we do this right, God will be glorified. Start with me in verse... Well, start in verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing your name. Three times in these verses, God is glorified. Why would this happen? Why would our being of the same mind, though we are different, bring glory to God? Because when the world, the same world that turns every single thing into an us versus them... Now, you can be in a lot of different groups of us and a lot of different groups of them because we have to take everything and make it an us-them, right? The same world who makes everything into an us-them and we are all but led, encouraged, and forced to divide along these lines and to hate the guy on the other side. You can't even kind of like him. you got to hate him and be real angry at it. When the world that wants us to hate, mistrust, and work against one another, who wants everything to be an us versus them and distance from others that are not just like you, when that world sees a diverse group coming together and loving and preferring and existing and worshiping with one another in one accord and of one mind. That world takes notice. Those who are in our world who don't know or understand Christ take notice. And you know what else? Those who are in our world that think they know Christ, that don't know Him correctly, that don't know Him fully, they notice too. It's an evangelistic tool if we come in here and do as we're supposed to do and be of the same mind and love one another. The world notices that. How do I know? Because I didn't take a survey. I got news for you. I didn't have time. I didn't take a survey. Everybody out there asking if they notice if we do it right. John 13. Turn with John 13. The reason I know is because Jesus told me so. The world will notice. John 13. Beginning in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Well, how would they know? Because they notice it. They see it. When we love one another, when we are of the same mind, when we accept one another it is to the glory of God. They notice, and Paul tells me that in doing this, God will ultimately be glorified. Now, I'm out of time, but i got a couple of things, and I'll see, look, into slides, it's good news, right? Okay, give me just a couple of minutes, and I'll I'll cork it and be done. You know what it seems like, when I read through my outline, you know what it seemed like to me? Jacob, you have set up a whole lot of really simple straw man arguments. Ooh, don't be racist. Ooh, don't hate the poor guy. I don't really reach out there on a limb there Jacob, you smack down on us, we won't hate the poor guy now. It seems like you set up a bunch of really simple things and gave us really simple answers to those problems. The only problem with that is all these potentially divisive issues are real. They were, you know why they seem simple? Do you know why they seem so simple like I'm setting up straw man arguments? Because they're very simple to prove they're wrong. It's very simple to point to any number of passages with even a cursory knowledge of Scripture and go clearly, those things are not right. So why am I even having to spend time talking about them? Because they exist, and they're real, and they were a problem in the first century church, and they're a problem in churches today, and they can even be a problem here in this building at Oak Mountain right here, right now. Jacob, are you crazy? No. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole, and I'm not speaking in generals every congregation that has any form of diversity of age, maturity, economics, race, cultural, anything, has the potential for these problems. And if they're not very careful, they will have these problems. I had a, a sister at a congregation that I'm aware of, not here, when I mentioned that I was preaching on this, said, Phew, that's terrible. I hope you all really work on that. We don't have any problems like that here at Church X. and I I don't think she liked my answer. My answer was you got two options here. Either you are willfully ignorant and you do have those problems at Church X, or at least the potential for them. Or you don't have those problems at Church X because your evangelism is garbage and the only people sitting in those pews are people that look, talk, think, and act exactly like you. Maybe you don't have those problems, but you're not reaching the world if you don't, or at least the potential for them. These problems exist you know why they exist? As long as Christians have to live and work and school and play and come out of the society around us, and as long as we're doing our job in evangelizing and bringing in new people, you know, new Christians can come from someplace other than the womb of people sitting in this room right now. It's tough, I know. As long as Christians live and work in the world, and as long as new Christians are coming out of the world, the problems of the world come in those doors. It's inevitable. So why is this a problem? Because it's a problem in the world. And why must we be diligent about it? Because it's a problem in the world, and those problems are the ones that come in here. What are the problems in the church? Whatever the problems in the world are, that's the problems in the church. It's not complicated. That's the problems in the church. So to say, good thing we don't have any of those problems, and gloss right over it, that's doing a disservice Common sense. Those problems can't exist here. And most of the times I found that when these problems exist in in churches, it's not malicious. Sometimes it's simple ignorance, carelessness. I didn't think about that before I said it, did it. You know, I didn't realize how that would come across to a person with financial difference X or racial difference Y. Eh, I didn't hate that guy. Wasn't paying attention. And so These problems are real, and brethren get really hurt by them, and we need to be aware of them and work on them, because our goal, once again, be of the same mind with one another according to the mind of Christ Jesus, and when we do, so that God may be glorified. Verse 7, accept one another to the glory of God. Now, this was not a what-must-I-do-to-be-saved lesson. This is not a sinner-come-to-Jesus lesson. If you're a Christian, if you're already a member of the body, you're having trouble with these things, you know what you got to do to make it right. If it's between you and a brother, fix it. If it's in your heart, between you and God, talk to God and fix it. If you have offended someone, talk to that guy, fix it. If it's something public, okay, come public and fix it. You know what you got to do, I don't have to tell you. But the bottom line is fix it. If you're not a Christian, I'm going to pose this question to you, because we talked about the world out there a lot tonight. We talked about us and them. You know there's one us and them that God's totally okay with, that God promotes us, his body, and them, not his body. So sometimes you ask people, what team you want to be on? When you look out there and you see hatred and chaos and malice and envy and every evil thing, I simply ask you, is that the team you want to be on? If it is, knock yourself out. You don't have to do anything. That's the easy way. You don't have to do anything. If that's the team you want to be on, choose that team. If that's not the team you want to be on, choose the side of love and joy and peace Choose the side of Jesus Christ through being of the same mind with Jesus Christ our Lord and join us in glorifying God. If you're subject to the invitation in any way tonight, do want you come forward as we stand and sing.